Well, it's 2020, and we shouldn't be surprised that your chapel speaker is coming to you this morning from quarantine. Yes, I know many of you have been there, and now I join you for the next couple weeks. And yet I'm grateful that I can still be here with you in this way, and I want to thank Mark Proctor and the production team for making this possible. And I want to thank all of you for your patience this entire semester. It's been difficult in so many ways, and yet you have persevered. And here we are uh, near the end. We're going to make it to the finish. So thank you for your patience. Now, this morning, our topic is the heart. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments from the book of Deuteronomy, and one of the pieces that connects all of them is this thing about the heart, the heart of the covenant. Uh, You know, Jesus encountered a a rich young ruler who came to him and said, I've kept all the commandments. I've been perfect in keeping the commandments from my youth. And Jesus said, but you lack one thing. You need to sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And the man went away sad. He had great wealth. He had another God that was ultimate in his life. He was lacking one thing in spite of keeping the commandments. There's a classic story of the, the boy who was unwilling to sit down. His parents finally cajoled him to sitting down, and he said to them, I may be sitting down, but I'm standing up in my heart. Well, sometimes we can sit down, we can obey the commands, but be standing up in our heart. And that's why the Shema tells us to love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your might. And so this morning, we're going to look at the matter of the heart when it comes to the command. Our text is Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning with verse 12. And while you're finding that, let me give you some context. Moses has been uh, recounting what God has done for the people of Israel, how he has led them through the wilderness. Their, Their clothes haven't worn out. He's given them manna from heaven, water from the rock. And now they are poised to enter the promised land, to receive the blessings that he is going to give them. He wants to remind them at this point of the covenant, of his promises to them and their promises to him. Verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. In this text, Moses restates the covenant and invites Israel to participate in it. And in discussing this text, I want to answer three questions about it. The first is the nature of the covenant. What is the nature of a covenant relationship? Second, why is the heart condition central to that covenant? And third, how do we go about changing the condition of our heart? 
First, what is the nature of our covenant with God? Well, of course, it is first contractual. It is legal. It is, a, it is an exchange of obligations. Uh, God promises, in this case, uh, land and children and blessing to Israel in exchange for their obedience and exclusive worship. Uh, we all have contractual relationships in our life as well. We have the employer-employee relationship. As an employee, I agree to show up for work and do my job. As an employer, I agree to pay you and train you and maybe provide a shirt with your name on it. Uh, as students, you have a contractual relationship with the college. As a college, we agree to educate you and to uh, provide uh, housing, food, and to help you find a job upon graduation. And in exchange for that, you agree to, to study, to pay your bill, to uh, learn the material, and then graduate, right? Uh, as citizens, we have a contractual relationship with our governor. Government. We agree to pay taxes and obey the laws. The government, in turn, agrees to repair the roads and guarantee our safety and security, and most importantly, to guarantee our rights. Uh, that's the contractual nature of a covenant. But there's also a personal relationship as well, because each one of those relationships I've just described also has a personal element of trust involved. As an employer, I trust you to show up to work and do your job. As an employee, you trust me to pay you. Um, as a student, you trust me as a professor to deliver truth to you and train you, as, and I, as a professor, trust you to do your part in that as well. And we have to trust the government to, to do its job and protect our rights, even as they trust us to, to pay our taxes. When that trust breaks down, we have trouble, don't we? And it's, it's of a personal nature. It gets personal when someone breaks a promise, when someone violates the trust in that contract. And so for that reason, the covenant is only as good as the character of the covenant maker. And so to confirm the character of the covenant maker, we engage in what are called sign acts of the covenant. We engage in these symbolic actions that, uh, that sort of cement the covenant in each party. In the case of an employer, there's literally the signing of a contract, a legal document that states the obligations of both parties. In the case of, of uh, the college, uh, we remember back a couple months ago, as faculty, we stood, we made promises to you, and you stood and made promises to us. That was a, a binding sign act of a covenant. A couple weeks ago, some friends of ours became U.S. citizens, and they pledged an oath of allegiance to the United States to support the laws and the Constitution of the U.S. and to forsake their country of origin and their allegiance there a sign act of the covenant. Well, the Bible has some of these as well, and I wanna look at a couple of those. The first are, the first is in Genesis 15. And this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham was told by God that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, and that he would inherit the land on which he was at that time camping. And Abraham said, well, God, I'd like a sign. What, you know, how, can I, how can I know this will happen? I'm 75 years old at this time doesn't seem very likely. And so God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a, a, a heifer and a goat and a ram and a dove and a pigeon. I want you to slice them in half and uh, separate them from one another. And uh, then Abraham did that and he watched and waited. Nothing happened. Eventually he fell asleep. And in a vision, he sees a flaming torch and a smoking pot to make their way through those sacrificed animals. And that seems rather strange to us today, right? But in the ancient world, that was a normal thing to do for a king and a vassal in making a covenant. 
the uh, vassal, the servant, would walk through these slaughtered animals as a way of saying, if I fail to keep my promises to you, O king, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. I will take the curse of disobedience. Now, what's strange about this sign act is that Abraham wasn't the one that walked through the sacrificed animals. It was Yahweh represented by the flaming torch and the smoking pot, smoke and fire. These were symbols of God. And so God was saying, Abraham, you can trust me on pains of death. I will keep my promise. Now, the writer of Hebrews says God didn't have anyone greater to swear by, so he swore by himself, guaranteeing the promise. The next sign act of the covenant I want to highlight is in Genesis 17, two chapters later, 24 years later in Abraham's life. And so Abraham, 24 years, no children yet uh, through Sarah. And so this time God says, Abraham, I want you to do a sign act, and it's going to be the sign act of circumcision. Now, circumcision may seem a little strange again to modern ears, but it, it, it made sense. It was a way of marking a person as belonging to someone, in this case, belonging to God. And this was a sign of, of identification and marking for the men of Israel. And typically it was done on the eighth day after birth, but in this case it was Abraham and all of his household that were circumcised. It must have been a tremendous act of faith to do that, uh, but it had significant meaning and purpose. If you think about it, God could have marked his people in many ways, you know, a tattoo, an ear piercing, a hairstyle, clothing, there were all kinds of ways to signify uh, ownership of a, of, uh, of a group and, and, and group identity but God chose this sign. Uh, now, one thing we need to know about covenants is that covenants were cut. Uh, in fact, the Hebrew idiom for to make a covenant is to cut a covenant. So covenants involved cutting, whether it was the cutting of, of the animals that Abraham did in chapter 15 or the cutting uh, of the foreskin in circumcision in chapter 17. And, and so what the significance of this is that God is marking the man at a very private, personal, sensitive part of his body that will forever say that you belong to me. And it's significant that this part of the body is connected with reproduction. That this part of the body connected with a woman, a man and woman come together and they are able to do something that only God can do. They can create life. And God is saying, guys, your sexuality, your power to create life needs to be identified with my purposes, with my design in order to receive my blessing. And so circumcision served as a constant reminder uh, to a man of his identity and his purpose, particularly when it came to his powerful sexual nature to glorify God with what God had given him. This mark of circumcision was practiced all the way up into the New Testament. In fact, it became the source of some controversy. You'll recall there was a council in Acts 15 that settled the question of whether Christians needed to be circumcised. And I think Paul sums up the heart of the issue in Romans 2.28. He says, for no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. This brings us back to Deuteronomy, circumcise your hearts. And as I was reflecting on this passage in Deuteronomy, what struck me 
was that there are two hearts in the center of this passage. Verse 15 and 16, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose them. And verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, the two hearts, God's heart and your heart. Which brings us to my second question. What is, why is the condition of the heart so central to the covenant? First look at God's heart. Uh, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. This is a picture of grace. I don't know what else to call it. Israel was no more deserving of God's grace than any other people. They were stiff-necked, they were hard-hearted, they rebelled again and again, but God had chosen them. He made a promise to Abraham and he was gonna keep it upon pain of death. I think that's why throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as a jealous God. Consider Exodus 34. God says, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God's jealousy is referred to five times in the book of Deuteronomy alone. And again, this kind of language could be off-putting to a modern reader. I mean, what's wrong with God? Why is he jealous? I mean, that, isn't that, is he insecure? Is he, is he missing something that he can't have? Well, that's because jealousy has two meanings. There is, first of all, the negative meaning. This is what Beth was referring to last week, that selfish desire to have something else that someone else has. Uh, maybe, I, you know, I wish I had his money or his muscle or I, I wish I had her good looks or her friends or her personality. And it's a selfish desire. But there is a jealousy that is also, uh, that is for, for good. For example, a parent might be jealous for the good of a child. And the, the, the child may be making some bad choices and they want what is good for them. Or perhaps a husband sees another man flirting with his wife and he's jealous and it's, it's not out of selfishness, it's because he wants what's best for their relationship and for his wife. An unselfish kind of jealousy. Well, that's the kind of jealousy that God has, only it's absolutely pure unselfish because even a, even a parent, even a, a spouse, there is, there is some selfishness in that jealousy. But for God, there is no selfishness whatsoever because God's lacking in nothing. He needs nothing. And so his jealous love for us is entirely unselfish. He wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is him. There's another metaphor that's used in the Old Testament for for God, and that is fire. He's a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4, 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself in many cases as fire, as smoke, as, uh, as a mountain at Sinai, that's how he appears. And fire is at once both beautiful and powerful, uh, creative and destructive, comforting and dangerous. God is a consuming fire. And, and here in, in this passage in De- Deuteronomy, God's jealous, fiery love, it says, is fixed on us. Uh, the condition of God's heart and relationship to his people is absolutely clear. He's passionately jealous for our good. But what about our hearts? Deuteronomy 10, 16 says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Notice the word therefore. That's the link between these two verses. It's cause and effect. Uh, God's passionate, jealous heart for us, fixed on us, that's the cause. The effect is we need to circumcise, mark, identify 
our hearts with his as well. This is, to me, similar to the idiom that we see in Acts chapter 2, 37, when the early converts heard the gospel and they were pierced in the heart. Do you recall that time when you were pierced in the heart with the overwhelming love of God? And when you participated in that sign act of the covenant in the New Testament, your baptism, when you were crucified with Christ and raised anew. Unfortunately, if we're not careful, stubbornness and self-will can come between our heart and God's heart. And we can find ourselves circumcised outwardly, but not inwardly. Baptized, but not crucified. It's not a new problem. Isaiah talked about it. Jesus quoted Isaiah saying, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's possible to move from a tender heart to a calloused heart, from a living, beating, bleeding heart to one that is dull, callous, and unfeeling. We don't have to look any farther than David, David, who was described as a man after God's own heart, who, who wrote almost half of the Psalms, and yet there was a season in David's life where he found himself very far from God, outwardly probably still going through the motions, but inwardly was dying, his heart far from God. I've been a professional Christian all my life. <laughs> By that I mean I've professed Christ as long as I can remember. And for the last 35 years, I've been paid to do ministry. And one of the hazards of being a professional Christian is that you can become very good at going through the motions, at doing all the things, at keeping all the commandments, but a heart can be colder and further from God. Uh, in the summer of 2019, my wife and I had a, a tremendous experience in a spiritual retreat. I'd never done anything quite like this before, but we, we went up to Michigan for, for a week, and for five days, we were cut off from everything, from internet, from laptops, from the news. It was just um, time alone with the two most important people in my life, my God and my wife. And, and through those days of taking walks in the wood and canoeing on a lake and just being together and talking and praying and listening and reading, uh, God said three words to me. I love you. I love you. And, and I found my heart become more, more tender, more warm to God, more grateful for his grace and more tender and more warm to my wife as well. The two go hand in hand. Uh, part of the way that God spoke to me was uh, through a book, uh, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, uh, Restoring, uh, Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. In that book, he, he tells the story of the prodigal son. And while I, I didn't identify with the prodigal son, I, I saw very clearly that I was the older brother. I was the one who was working so hard to earn his father's favor that he failed to receive his father's grace. I think sometimes one of the hazards of professional ministry is that we can be like that older brother who's so careful to keep the commandments but not to receive the grace, not to be amazed over and over again by the love of God. So how do we change the condition of our heart I remember when I met my wife, Joy, for the very first time. We were students, and I saw her, and I was, I was smitten. 
She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. I was charmed. Her, her voice, her laughter, everything about her was intoxicating. I sat next to her for 45 minutes the first time I saw her and didn't say a word. My heart was racing. My mind was reeling. I was trying to come up with something clever to say, and I said nothing. <laughs> now, thankfully, I knew some of her friends, and I was able to figure out how I could stalk her for the next couple of weeks. And I managed to bump into her, and I started going to her church. And, you know, we just kept accidentally meeting until finally uh, I got the courage to ask her to go out on a date. And uh, thankfully, she said yes. And a year to the day later, I asked for her hand in marriage, and she said yes as well. And 35 years later, I'm still intoxicated and captivated by her love. I think if our hearts are to be changed, it will be when we're captivated by love. One of the greatest love stories of the Bible is the story of Jacob and Rachel. You know, Jacob sees Rachel, he is smitten, and uh, he asks her father Laban, what, what can I do to marry her? And Laban sees opportunity, he sees dollar signs, and he says, if you'll work for me for seven years, you can have her. Seven years. Now, I, I worked this out, at, at today's wages in the U.S., that's about $350,000, well over a quarter of a million dollars. Not only the, the money cost, labor cost, but also the waiting seven years. Now, I know the pandemic this last year forced a lot of people to postpone their weddings, and some were like, well, we'll just, we'll just wait another year. Not Ozark students. <laughs> what kind of love caused Jacob to wait and work so long? We have this amazing statement in verse 20 of Genesis 29. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Seven years, seemed like a few days because of his love. What kind of unselfish love is that <laughs> that lays aside the self for another? I submit to you that, that Jacob had fixed his eyes on the prize, the woman that he wanted above all else. Because of that, his waiting seemed like only a few days. And my friends, that is a picture of the love that Jesus has for us. Consider what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What could motivate Jesus to endure the cross? What could compel him to endure the pain, the beatings, the mocking, the humiliation, the separation from his father? How was he able to endure? Because of the joy that was set before him. What was the joy before him? Was it the fact that his pain would end? that at three o'clock it, it was over and there would be an end to, the, to it all, perhaps? But what, was it the fact that he would be reunited with his father, that he would, he would be released from the, the, the bonds of humanity and once more grasp equality with God? Uh, was it that he would be greeted in heaven and seated at the right hand of God and worshiped by myriads of angels? Was that the joy that was set before him? I, I don't think so. I think he had all those things already. He gave those up to come to the earth. The joy set before him was you, was me. 
It was all of humanity. We were his Rachel. We were the joy set before him. We were the ones that he was jealous for. Jealous. Jesus had everything. The sovereign creator, the ruler of the universe, everything is his. But what he wants is what's best for us. And what's best for us is him. I said earlier that a covenant involved cutting. In the case of Abraham, it was the cutting of animals and walking through. In the case of uh, Abraham, it was also circumcision, a cutting. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus institutes a covenant with us, a new covenant, he does so in his blood. On that night, when he took the cup, when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Within hours of speaking those words, Jesus' blood would be literally poured out as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem, as he hung on the cross and the blood ran down the wood and into the ground, as the spear pierced his side, as he was whipped and beaten and cut. A new covenant, a new covenant in his blood. He took the curse for our disobedience to the covenant. We cannot force the condition of our hearts to change by the power of our will. Our hearts will only change when they are cut, when they are pierced with the knife of God's passionate suffering for us. When we see how much he loved us, that we are his Rachel, then we will respond in love as well and we will say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth holds nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Our Father, as we reflect on the cross this morning, the cut and bleeding body of Jesus, his blood poured out for us because of his jealous love for us, his pursuit of us. Our hearts are broken, our hearts are cut, our hearts are now marked forever and identified with you because of what you have done for us. God, cut away any hardness, any, ten, any, any, any stubbornness and calluses and soften us once again to the truth. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. And in his name we pray. Amen.